How many of you know it's allergy season? There you go. We're looking at biblical stories where good and grief intersect. It's easy to believe that sad is bad, and the Bible paints a different picture. The word for grief is the word for pain, so it's not fun, but interestingly, what the Bible indicates is that grief is a place where we interface with God in a real way. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. And it depicts the experience of mourning and grief as being a place where we are encouraged or comforted by God. Not only that, but grief is a place where we receive things from God. He comforts us in all our sufferings so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves receive from him. So grief is a place where grief is a place where we connect with God and where we experience things that we can pass on to others. And no wonder they call him the Savior. Max Licato characterizes tears in this way. He says those tiny drops of humanity, those round, wet balls of fluid that tumble from our eyes, creep down our cheeks, and splash on the floor of our hearts. He said that they were there that day. They are always present at such times. They should be. That's their job. They are miniature messengers on call 24 hours a day to substitute for crippled words. They drip, drop, and pour from the corners of our souls, carrying with them the deepest emotions we possess. They tumble down our faces with announcements that range from the most blissful joy to the darkest despair. A tear stain on a letter says much more than the sum of all its words. A tear falling on a casket says what a spoken farewell never could. What summons a mother's compassion and concern more quickly than a tear on a child's cheek? What gives more support than a sympathetic tear on the face of a friend? Last year, last week, we saw that tears were windows into the heart of a sinful woman. We understood that her tears expressed repentance, and repentance, we described, is not only moving from a sinful lifestyle, but towards love for Jesus. And that's why Jesus depicts in this story that he tells. And what we learned is this is the result of forgiveness, that this woman experienced forgiveness, and having done so, the experience of forgiveness is what created in her a desire to connect with God, with Jesus, in a significant way. This week, tears are windows through which we will look into the heart of God himself on the cheeks of Jesus when he raises Lazarus from the dead. These miniature messengers tell us volumes about him. I don't know that there is a more significant story than the one where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, and what Jesus does there and what that tells us about him. As we come to this incident in Jesus' life, it's been over two hundred, two and a half years into his public ministry, not many months from his death. He's heading south to Jerusalem. The last time he was there, he barely escaped leaving the city, he barely escaped being stoned to death. And this, as he comes here, will be his last visit when he leaves 
the confines of Jerusalem, he will do so with a cross on his shoulders. It's in your worship folder we pick up the narrative in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem, less than two miles away. When it talks about Mary and Martha, it says Mary is the one that poured perfume on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Actually, that's a copycat thing from what we find here. This woman, this sinful woman, this must have happened in the north of Israel. So this is a copycat thing. At one point, Mary, the sister of Martha, did the same thing. We don't know who did it first. There's We, we tend to put all the Marys together. There's Mary Magdalene, and she was one from whom a bunch of demons went out. Then there's there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then there's this Mary, and then there's the sinful woman who was anointed. These all seem to be separate accounts. Um, upon hearing about Lazarus' sickness, Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's important to understand, as we think of what's going to happen as we see Jesus, that he knew what would happen. He had a plan. He knew the sickness wouldn't end in death. It would pass through it, but it would not end there. And Jesus, knowing that, waits where he is for a couple of days, and this waiting accomplishes a couple of things, two things. Number one, it by waiting... Jesus demonstrates himself to be the resurrection and the life. Um, He had repeatedly mentioned resurrection in the last day. This is something that he had in common with mainstream Judaism. Uh, Martha believed with Jesus and with Judaism the belief in the resurrection of the body. And they believed that in those days. Pharisees believed it. Sadducees did. And as we've said before, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were... Sad, you see. Okay, there you go. Um, mainstream Judaism believed that in the last day the body rises. and But what Jesus is saying and what he teaches is a little bit different. That's what he said. Jesus said to her, it's not in your text, but I'm, let me read it, uh, to Martha when she came out to meet him, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise at the resurrection at the last day. This is what mainstream Judaism believed. And so she was, yeah. But Jesus goes on. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is a different claim. 
just as he not only gives bread from heaven, but he says he himself is the bread of life. In the same way, he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus is doing, he's pointing to himself and indicating that there is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. He is the resurrection and the life. Connection with Jesus, then, with him specifically, is the means whereby anybody can have eternal existence. It's in him. So, therefore, to get the eternal life that is in him, we need a connection with him. That's why God sent him. The Father sent the Son. Well, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, that he is the resurrection and the life, will not perish but have eternal life. And so, in waiting two days, then Lazarus is going to die, and Jesus is able then to to be able to raise Lazarus and say these things to us, because that's really the purpose for why this story is in the Bible. So that you will see what Jesus does with this person in this tomb, and understand that Jesus does this not only in a temporal way, but in an eternal way. And he wants you to understand this, because if you believe in this, you'll have the eternal life that's in him. And that's why, so he wants us to understand this. Another reason is establishing the faith not only of his disciples, but of the onlookers. If he waits a couple of days, this family must be fairly prominent. Uh, when Mary anoints Jesus' feet, and this, again, in this copycat thing, it's pretty expensive. Um there's a lot of people that come the 1.7 miles from Jerusalem to where this family is grieving. They must have been a, a fairly prominent family. And by waiting a couple of days, it's not just the disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's a lot of people around. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, um, they see it. And in fact, what Jesus indicated is what occurred. It says in John 12:31, on account of Lazarus, Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So that's why Jesus waited, so that he could point to himself as the resurrection of life, and so more people would be able to understand that. So all this is to say that Jesus had a plan. He knew why he was doing what he was doing, and he had a purpose, that glory would be brought to him because of the miracle he would perform. When we think about glory as it relates to God, it's not, it, well, really what glory is, it's associated with self-disclosure. All God has to do to bring glory to himself, really, is just reveal himself. Glory isn't God fishing for compliments. You know, God wants glory, and it feels somewhat prideful and arrogant that God wants us to say nice things about him. That's not the picture with God. For God, glory is about self-disclosure. When God says something about himself, puts it in the light of reality, we are going to react. That's why we've been created. We've been created to draw our life from the light of who God is. The more we understand who God is, the more that understanding changes us. As we see his glory and his goodness, it starts to change us from, I like the song, from the inside out from the inside out. That's how it changes us. Uh, God would reveal his character in a clear way because of what 
Jesus is going to do. You know the, the, the prayer, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food, amen. Um, that what will happen will reflect both God's glory, his goodness, and his greatness. And so, when Jesus arrives at Bethany, Lazarus has been dead four days. That's important. If you remember the story, The Knight's Tale, I love that story when, um, I forget the, the, the main character's name, Billy Crystal says, he's mostly dead. If you see in the movie, he's not really dead, he's mostly dead. So it's, um, what, in rabbinic Judaism, they, um, they believe that the, the soul hovered over the body for three days or so, waiting to get in. Again, it's kind of belief at the time. And then when the body begins to change, when decomposition begins to set in, at that point, the spirit separates from, there's no possibility of resuscitation. Jesus stayed long enough so that nobody would be able to accuse him of raising somebody who was mostly dead. <laughs> he was he was really dead. And uh, at this point, death is irreversible, and there's no chance for resuscitation. What we read is in John 11 and 31, it's in your text, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her. Mary, Martha was the first one out. She understood that Jesus was there. She went out. She had the discussion with Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then Martha went in to get Mary. And when Mary started to leave to connect with Jesus, everybody who was there, the mourners, they, you know, she's going to cry, and so let's go with her. Um, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The word translated deeply moved is literally a word that describes the snorting of horses. It's when, when an animal ready to charge paws the ground. It has the sense of, uh, when applied to human beings, it suggests Anger, outrage, and indignation. Jesus' inward reaction as he sees this is surprising. It is divine anger. He is indignant, angry. And our question is, why? Why is he pawing the ground ready to charge? Uh, John also says he's troubled. Troubled means stirred up and churned up. If you think of it, you might think of a storm at sea or if there's a washing machine and you open it during the wash cycle and the agitate, the agitator is spinning. If we looked inside Jesus, that's what we would see. Churned up emotions. Um, some of the senses, the way that the text has been translated, indicate that the emotional upset is about empathy and grief and pain. And that doesn't work. That's not the words. Jesus is pawing the ground. He's ready to have a confrontation. What is he angry about? That's a question, isn't it? Why is this man angry? A couple of things could be. Maybe it's because of hypocrisy. 
maybe because of hypocrisy. In those days, Jewish funeral custom dictated that even a poor family was required to hire at least two flutists to play dirges. And they were to hire a professional wailing woman. And that's what you were supposed to do. So there would be somebody really good at crying. And that was part of creating a context. And culturally for us it seems silly, but that's what would happen. This family had means. And so there would be a number of people playing instruments and a number of people who are professional wailers. And and some have indicated Jesus is probably reacting to the hypocrisy. Okay. Possible. I don't think so. It's because of the fall. Some commentators say it's really about uh, Jesus is angry with sin, sickness, and death. This fallen world has fallen into being exposed to these things. It creates havoc and generates so much sorrow, and that Jesus is angry about the fall. Some say because of unbelief. Jesus' anger is directed at unbelief. The men and women before him were grieving like pagans, like the rest of men who have no hope. They should have known better. They should have known him, that he raises people from the dead, and maybe he's reacting to their unbelief that the, the extent of the grief at the bereavement um, is an implicit denial of the resurrection. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is angry about hypocrisy. I don't think he's angry about a fallen world, and I don't think he's angry about unbelief either. I think he's angry at death. He's angry at the death of Lazarus itself. I think this is confirmed by verse 38, because when he asks, where have you laid him? And we'll get back to that part of the passage. They go to the tomb, and he gets to the tomb, and this is what it says. When he gets there, Jesus once more deeply moved and deeply moved again has that same thing. It's not, he's not wiping a tear from his eye. He's, there's, there's, there's a, an indignation and, and what is that anger about? I think it's directed toward the grave. Like a wrestler who's preparing for a wrestling match or a boxer preparing for a boxing match. He's going toe-to-toe with death itself and is getting ready to do so. He won't, re- he won't leave the confines again without doing so and confronting death personally, head-on. And he's getting ready, getting fired up. Bible says, and it's in your thing, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes the armor away in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Death is strong. No one had ever consistently robbed death of its possessions. And Jesus is going to go in and grab somebody out of the mouth of death and it's going to pull them out. And that's what he's getting ready to do. Uh, the song back in the old days, how many of you remember Petra? 
Used to be a Christian group. Okay. Thank you very much for remembering that. Song with good lyrics. Grave robber. Grave robber. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going to look in. Nobody's ever done this consistently. He's going to reach into the grave and take it. Take what's in there. Here's what what the lyrics say. There's a step that we all take alone. An appointment we have with the great unknown. Like a vapor. This life is just waiting to pass. Like the flower that fades. Like the withering grass. But life seems so long. And death so complete. And the grave an impossible portion to cheat. But there's one who has been there. He still lives to tell. There is one who has been to both heaven and hell. And the grave will come up empty handed that day. Jesus will come and steal us away. Many still mourn. Many still weep. For those that they love who have fallen asleep. But we have this hope, though our hearts may still ache, just one shout from above, and they all will awake. And in the reunion of joy we will see, death has been swallowed in sweet victory. Where is the sting? Tell me. Where is the bite? When the grave robber comes, like a thief in the night, Where is the victory? Where is the prize when the grave robber comes and death finally dies? That's why he's angry. He's going to go against death. And it's going to happen soon. And because he does so, pull you out of death to be with him eternally. Grave robber. How exactly does Jesus overpower death? It's a good question. What is he going to have to do? And how does it work? Um, At the cross, he deals with the sting of death. We all are going to die. But there is a sting of death that not all of us have to experience. So Jesus can take out the stinger. It's the sting of death. That's what it says. Look what it says in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Important passage. That's what it says. The sting of death is. Okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the same thing. And so, you, it, it, some of you have seen this. Surprising. Okay, this makes sense, right? The sting of death is. Say it loud. The sting of death is. Sin. Yeah, that's right. Sin. And the power of sin is, wait a minute, minute. let's try that again. The sting of death is, go like this, sin. And the power of sin is, what law are we talking about? Talking about the law of Moses. 
How about the old covenant? You can't say that with a snare on your face, can you? Power of sin is. Are you, are you understanding what that's saying? And so in order to remove the death, the sting of death, what does Jesus have to deal with? Oh, come on. Are you, really? What does Jesus have to deal with? Law. You know why Jesus went to the cross? To deal with law. Isn't that surprising? How come we don't hear that? We don't hear that. That's what Jesus did. So that we could move towards death. Death is not a fun thing. A specter of judgment hanging over your head. Death is intolerable. Have you done enough? you done enough of the Ten Commandments? To expect that when you die, you'll go to be with them? Death is a long time. You know what Jesus came to do? To remove the doubt. Death is not fun. What Jesus would have us understand, with that taken out of the way, connected with him, he would have us understand that on the far side of the grave, that he's going to pull you up ten seconds after you breathe your last. Your spirit goes to be with him. Then Jesus will come a second time. Bodies and spirits will unite and we will go in the same kind of body that Jesus had to be with him. And we will exist in the same form he does. Jesus exists as an immortal spirit in an eternal body. We are immortal spirits in mortal bodies. And what happens on the far side of death, through connection with Jesus, um, we get to, to be with him. This is what happened at the cross. Look what it says in terms of how did he deal with this. Um, Colossians 2, he forgave us all our sins. Having, Okay, he forgave us all our sins. How does he do that? How does he do that? To forgive means to send away. So that they're not standing in front of you anymore. They don't constitute a barrier between you and God. He forgave us all our sins. How does he do that? It says. Having canceled the written code. With its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was raised... He's taken down off the cross and put in the tomb and raised from the dead. There's something that stayed on the cross. What is that? The law. You know what? It was nailed up there. This has been annulled, rescinded. It's not the operating system by which God judges. He is not going to look at you and say, did you lie? Did you, did you honor the Lord's day? Did you honor it enough? Did you bear false witness against your neighbor? Did you commit adultery? If you did, sorry, there's no guarantees. Are you sure you've done enough? You know what Jesus did? He took that standard and he annulled it. Nailed it to the cross. Why would he do something like that? You know what? 
Because with that standard hanging over your head, there's no way you can know you're going to be with him when you die. There's just no way. None of us can be sure we've done enough. You know. So Jesus, he forgave our sins having canceled the written code with the standard which against us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And then it goes on to say, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. Do you know what Jesus was angry about? Again, he's not angry at the law, but he's angry at the way the law is used to put people in bondage. And you know what he said? And this is why he's angry. Let me take that. And he takes it. And he covers himself with the law. He puts his hands out, covered with law. Okay, drive the nails in. Because I'm going to leave this cross. But something is going to stay here. What is it that stayed there? Law. Jesus rose right out. And what he would have us understand is a new covenant. A new covenant in which he says, I will be hilios to your unrighteousness and will remember your sin no more. This is why he snorts again. It's why he paws the ground. The violent tyranny of death stands before his eyes. He will need this anger to get to the cross. It fuels his struggle on our behalf. See, it wasn't just love that drove him there. It was anger. I'm going to take that once and for all. Grave robber. Um, in terms of what happens at this time, Jesus said, John 11:38, take away the stone, he said. I think there's some heat here. Take away the stone. What he does, he's showing us something. Get the stone away. I don't know how he said it. He might not have said it real nice. So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he set out, he called out in a loud voice. There's some heat here. Lazarus, come out! Get out of there! Oh, watch that, John. There's a recording. <laughs> Dead man came out. His head and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take up the grave clothes and let them go. Um, the way it worked in that day, a, a, a long sheet, a sheet about twice as long, as a person was laid and his feet were placed so that they were even with the bottom of the sheet. So there was an expanse of five, six feet, and they put that over the body, bind the ankles together, bind the wrists to the body. Then they take another cloth and put it over the face so somebody who is bound like this, they, they can maybe shuffle out but they can't walk anywhere. And Lazarus gets to the place. He's groping for the entrance. And, and Jesus says, take off the grave clothes, let him go. He needs to be released from them.
there's anger here. And that's one thing that is not always reflected in the text. But there also is divine sympathy. Um, what it says in John 11, 34 to 36, Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and, Lord, come and see, Lord, they replied. This is amazing to me. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. What are those tears about? If you remember, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had a plan. He knew what he was going to do it for. He had a purpose. What do those tears communicate? They aren't tears of helplessness or powerlessness. Cemetery grief is oftentimes about powerlessness. There's nothing we could do. We did the best we could to provide medical care for those that we loved. But their heart gave out. Their liver gave out. They were unable to fight off the cancer. There's a powerlessness and a helplessness. That's what the grief is about sometimes. I would have done anything. Jesus is not helpless or powerless. Those tears are not about that. Um, they're not tears of remorse and regret. He knows what's going to happen. A bunch of people are going to come to believe. If it's not remorse or regret or it's not powerlessness, we understand the anger. What is this man crying for? Um, do you know what those tears are? Um, expressions of sympathy. He experiences a connection with people who are weeping. And it causes him to weep. Which is a very significant thing. He's caught up in the, the general grief over Lazarus' death. He experiences, he participates in the grief of everyone whose loved ones have gone into the grave. Even though Jesus is going to fight death, he also understands the pain that it exposes us to, and he has felt it, and he wants you to understand that he has. Jesus is not a bulletproof superman for whom anything approaching death just bounces off his... No, go ahead, shoot away. <sighs> no, it, even though they don't hit him, it does hit him does hit him. Um, there might have been many who saw in Jesus' expression of grief, impotence in the face of the onslaught of death. That really is to misunderstand him. Death is not going to exist the same way when he's done. But neither is he one who forbids tears in his presence. The one who knew I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to, let's read an article together. As they're getting set up, I'm going to read this. Read it along with me, and I'll, I'll read it out loud. It's, it's in there. It's from 40 days. It's the one where it's uh, day 32. I'm just going to read through it, and we'll close it this way. God sympathizes with me. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus wept. Close your, close your eyes and say these two words. No, really. 
take a moment before you read on. Close your eyes and say these two words to yourself. Go ahead. Congratulations. You've just memorized a Bible verse, a key Bible verse. An important verse of the Bible is now in your mind. What are the words again? Remind yourself of them. Okay, let's meditate on the verse together. Jesus wept. John 11.35 Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother, were particularly close friends of Jesus. Mary had once poured perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. They all loved Jesus unashamedly. Lazarus had become seriously ill. Mary and Martha sent word to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus told his disciples what would happen. The sickness went out and in death. He let them know in advance that a miracle was on the way. The sickness would travel through death but not end there. Jesus knew that Lazarus would die. He also knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus told the disciples why it would happen. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus knew that the love and power of God the Father and God the Son would come into clearer focus when Lazarus, bound in grave clothes, walked out of the darkness of the tomb into the light of day. For this reason, he did not immediately respond to the bad news of Lazarus' illness. Rather, he stayed where he was two more days. He waited until death had claimed Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. What would happen? Lazarus would be raised from the dead. Why would it happen so that you may believe? Jesus wants you to know that he has power over death. God has power to reach into death and pluck out life. Only he can do that. As Jesus approached Mary and Martha, as Jesus approached, Mary and Martha rushed to meet him. Their relationship with him was not polite and distinguished. It was passionate. They loved him. In the time of their grief, his was the face they wanted to see. His was the shoulder they wanted to cry on. They rushed to him. Mary clasped at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, there my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Wait a minute. Jesus already knew what would happen. He already knew why it would happen. What is that streaming from his eyes? What is that running down his cheek? Sympathy. Those are tears. That is sympathy. Those tears tell us a lot. They are windows through which we can see God more clearly. God knows what will happen. God knows why it will happen. However, he is not a dispassionate divine dictator. Not a distant, detached sovereign. How do we know? You know the answer. You've memorized the answer. Jesus wept. God sympathizes with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that exists in Father, Son, and Spirit, for the expression of that love and sense of anger, taking the sting of death, by removing the power of sin, dealing with law, removing the sense of conditional acceptance from over our head, replacing it with an assurance of eternal existence. And when we believe in that, it starts to change us. It becomes true for us. We become 
like Jesus. Um, and thanks for the, the sense of sympathy. We face things in this world that are difficult. It's, faith isn't supposed to negate experiences of grief and stuff like that, but it's something that allows us to enter, but we can enter with you. You walk with us into our grief. You share it with us. Pray that we'd see this. Thank you for how perfectly suited you are to walk with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.